Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Right after Election Day, a journalist named Sarah Kenzior told me that people should write down what they really believe about America, the basic ideas that, that contribute to their real-time notion of American democracy. Because, she said, reality is about to warp before your eyes and and the contours of everything will change and you need to make sure that you have something you can consult that tells you what you used to think. Well, I didn't really believe her at the time, but as we've done this particular radio series, Pardon Me, Another Damn Impeachment Show, which ends on this episode, I see that she's right. So today's show has Philip Rucker from the Washington Post, media critic Jay Rosen, Slate's David Plotz, the final edition of Factoids with Kion Wolf, and one final AccuFrankie Graziano dispatch from a stop and shop in Colchester, Connecticut. And if that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what will. Hi, I'm Colin McEnroe. Welcome to the 11th and final episode of Pardon Me, Another Damn Impeachment Show. I probably don't even have to tell you too much about our next guest because the book that he co-wrote has been making waves. It's Philip Rucker, who, along with Carol Lennig, wrote A Very Stable Genius, Donald J. Trump's Testing of America. Philip Rucker is the White House Bureau Chief at The Washington Post, a political analyst for NBC and MSNBC. So welcome back on this eventful, like all days in the Trump era, on this eventful day, Phil Rucker. Thank you so much for having me. And you're right. They're all eventful every day for three years now. So given the events of this day and given what a massive role former White House Chief of Staff John Kelly plays in your book, I have to just begin by asking you, as you no doubt know, at Drew University last night, I'm talking to you on Thursday, I should say, he spoke to an audience there. He said some things that I don't think he said for the record quite that way so far, so much of your reporting had to involve either trying to get him to say these things or document them to other people. Are you surprised by his frankness on Wednesday night? You know, I am surprised because uh, General Kelly, when he left the White House, he decided he wasn't going to speak publicly about the president. He decided not in that moment to write a book, his memoirs of his time serving the president. We know from our reporting with other people that he's confided in that he was deeply disturbed by some of what he witnessed from the president, his conduct, his behavior, his rhetoric, and was troubled by some of what he had to endure as the White House chief of staff. But this speech this week in the university setting is really the first time that we've seen Kelly unload publicly about the president. It seems that the president's treatment of Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, the decorated combat veteran who testified in the House impeachment inquiry, that the president's summary dismissal of him and attacks of Vindman on Twitter struck a nerve with Kelly, of course, a four-star Marine Corps general whose son died in combat. And so Kelly has a special place in his heart for veterans. And, you know, running through your book, it's clear that people in the military establishment, the security and intelligence establishments, all along, they have been concerned about a phenomenon that's difficult to characterize exactly in one restrictive way, but it might be described as President Trump simply disregarding protocol, disregarding expertise, disregarding existing rules and practices, and making up his own rules. And that seemed to be a little bit at the heart of what Kelly was talking about, that Vindman had done, as he repeatedly said, exactly what an officer like Vindman has been taught to do, from cradle to grave, he says, this is exactly what you're supposed to do. You hear something, you recognize it as potentially an illegal order, you report it to your boss. Everything that Vindman did, Kelly said, was exactly what an officer in his position should do. And I don't know, reading your book, in a way, Kelly's response, it's certainly not a response that he had that reaction to it. It might be a surprise that he said it in front of other people. That's right. And Kelly's right that Vindman was following the protocols of career public servants, of people in the military, of the hundreds of bureaucrats and subject matter experts who work in our government and follow protocols and norms. And when they see something concerning, they say something to a superior. That's what Vindman did. He also didn't voluntarily 
testify as a means of hurting the president. He was responding to a lawful subpoena by the Congress. It is his legal obligation to respond to that subpoena and offer his testimony when asked. And that's why he participated in the impeachment inquiry. That's where two things come into conflict. And one of them is what you just described, how a military officer ought to respond to a lawful subpoena. What it comes into conflict with is this sort of notion that Donald Trump, in a very first-person pronoun kind of way, is a power that can supersede all kinds of things. I mean, you know, if if Vindman got into trouble with Trump, it's because he didn't allow Trump's mandate to supersede those things. That's his quote-unquote sin, right? That's right. And, you know, what we document in A Very Stable Genius is that from the very beginning of this presidency, Trump has demanded absolute loyalty from the people who work in the government. And he doesn't demand loyalty to the country or to the noble values of public service, but rather loyalty to himself, to advancing the cause of Donald Trump, to buffing up the image of Donald Trump, to executing the wishes and whims of Donald Trump. That's what he expects the people in the government to do. And so when you have a public servant like Vindman who violates that in the judgment of the president, who says something publicly that the president doesn't like, who challenges the president, who points out problems with the president's conduct, that is an act of betrayal as the president sees it. And that explains why the president has been not only forced Vindman out of his National Security Council job, but has been attacking him publicly for several days now. So one of the other really late-breaking developments was the president's use of his pardon power on behalf of several different military personnel who are accused or convicted of war crimes. The most highly publicized of these was Edward Gallagher, a Navy SEAL. So it turns out that the seeds of that particular one had been planted in the ground a long time ago. And you do describe this kind of tension-filled dinner in the state dining room, I I think. Maybe you could say a little bit more about this. Yeah. So President Trump was very interested in the case of Gallagher, who was charged and I believe convicted of war crimes in his service, but became a cause celeb on the right, championed by Fox and Friends and and other programs on Fox News Channel, championed by Congressman Devin Nunes, a close Republican ally of President Trump's. And so Gallagher was top of mind for the president. And when he had what was sort of a regular formal dinner with the military brass at the White House, he brought up Gallagher's case and and tried to defend him and and suggest that he had been treated unfairly by the, the military's court system. That is certainly a violation of the norms. It's not appropriate traditionally for a president and commander-in-chief to be weighing in on an issue of military discipline or military legal proceedings. Trump's comments caught some of the officers in the room off guard. They were a little alarmed, not quite sure how to handle it. Some wanted to confront him but didn't because they're respectful, of course, of the chain of command and worry about standing up to the president in a setting like that. There was one military officer who did challenge the president. He was set to be retiring later in the year, so felt a little bit more free because of that to say his piece. But that wasn't the end of it for the president, and he continued to champion the case of Gallagher and actually acted on Gallagher's behalf later in the year 2019. And there's a lot of things, a lot of aspects to these kinds of stories that repeat themselves. They follow a certain form. In the case of Gallagher, there was, among other things, this tremendous campaign of witness intimidation that ultimately resulted in the person who was going to be the eyewitness, the main eyewitness against Gallagher, not only withdrawing his testimony, but basically taking the blame himself, suddenly out of nowhere, shocking the entire prosecutorial team. And, you know, we see this again and again. So let me just switch gears a a little bit, but not very, very far, Phil Rucker. So, I mean, another thing that's happened in the next last three or four days is the case of Roger Stone, which is, we should remind people, also a case that involved witness intimidation. I mean, you know, pretty heavy duty witness intimidation, too. I mean, judge intimidations, all kinds of things like that. And it did appear that a recommended sentencing order had come down. And suddenly things have changed. There was a a lighter sentence recommended. Four line prosecutors resigned from the case in protest. There was the installation of a close ally of William Barr as the head prosecutor in that office. The person who had that job was being transferred to a treasury job, which that person then didn't get. (laughs) It's like a chess 
chess game you can barely follow. You know, there are some common threads here, including this notion that at times principled people, people who are accustomed to doing things a certain way, either resign or withdraw, right? And you saw a lot of that in writing that writing the book. We did, although there were so many more times when principled public servants who saw wrongdoing just didn't stand up to the president, didn't resign, didn't make any sort of public show of force out of fear. They're afraid of him. They're afraid of what he could do as their boss. They're afraid of what he could do publicly to destroy their reputations. They're afraid, frankly, of what he might try to do with his powers as as president or influence the Justice Department to do to retaliate against them. So there were so many other public servants who just quietly whispered their disbelief and dismay without acting upon it. In this case this week, the four prosecutors did resign from the case. They have not resigned from the Justice Department, but they did resign from the case, which is a stunning thing. We do not normally see that in the Justice Department. And there's been a really chilling effect throughout the prosecutorial ranks in this country because Trump's intervention and the intervention of his senior political appointees at the Justice Department on behalf of Roger Stone is extraordinary. It is not normal. It is not following any norm. And it really jeopardizes the historic independence of the Justice Department in our system of rule and law. Let's hear a little bit of the president himself talking about what he sees as his role in a case like this. That, that if that's, no, I didn't speak to the just, I'd be able to do it if I wanted. I have the absolute right to do it. Uh, I stay out of things uh, to a degree that people wouldn't believe, but I didn't speak to him. I thought the recommendation was ridiculous. I thought the whole prosecution was ridiculous. Often when he says he didn't interfere, and the same thing I think appears to have been the case with the changing, the reduction in the recommended sentencing here, it seems as though he might not have directly interfered. But the people involved saw a tweet of his, which constituted basically an an instruction manual for how he wanted this thing to be handled. I mean, to say that you haven't interfered. I mean, you go ahead. You're more familiar with this than I am. Look, I mean, the president can interfere without picking up the phone and calling the attorney general and directing him to do something, right? So we can take Trump at his word that he didn't contact the Justice Department, but Attorney General Barr and all the political appointees who work for him certainly see the president's tweets and know when he is raging about something. And he made very plain his view on Twitter the night before that he thought that the sentencing recommendation for Stone was far too severe. And, you know, Barr has proven to be a very adept political operative, if it were, in Washington at this time. He understands Trump. He has sort of a gut instinct for what the president's going to care about and what the president's going to like and dislike. We saw him work to great effect at the conclusion of the Mueller investigation to try to shape the public impression and takeaway of that Russia investigation in a way that was not fully true to the findings of the report. And Barr did that to great effect and to the president's great pleasure. And so the attorney general currently is somebody who who knows his client, if it were, the, the president, and knows exactly what the president wants and is unafraid to sort of figure out ways to get that outcome. As you watched the impeachment process unfold, knowing everything that you knew, How did you react to it? I mean, were there things about it that surprised you, ways in which it veered off in directions you hadn't expected? Or did it feel as though this was simply an extension, the next iteration of all the patterns that you documented so well? You know, it felt so much like an extension of the patterns we document in the book and the patterns that we've all seen as Americans through this presidency. There was nothing wholly surprising about the president picking up the phone on July 25th, 2019, to call the Ukrainian president to ask for a political favor because it was very much in keeping with his conduct throughout the Russia investigation. The one element of the impeachment inquiry that did surprise me was that there were so many public servants and political appointees in the government who were willing to respond to those congressional subpoenas come forward on camera in front of the House of Representatives and tell their truth and document a fact pattern and show evidence with regard to the president's conduct. That did surprise me. I wasn't surprised by the evidence that they uncovered and shared, but I was surprised by their willingness to do so in such a sober and clear-headed fashion. And the other element of surprise, I think, was in the final days of the Senate impeachment trial in January, 
after it became clear that John Bolton, the former national security advisor, had new information and new details to bring to bear into the fore, was willing to come testify. I was surprised that the Senate ended up deciding not to hear from him or any other witnesses for that matter and to vote on the president's acquittal without seeing that evidence. That was Philip Rucker, the White House bureau chief at The Washington Post. In a recent column, I referred to him as probably the most important press critic in America. He may object to the word probably. Uh, he may not. His name is Jay Rosen. He is a media critic and professor of journalism at NYU, and he directs NYU's Studio 20 program. He's the author of PressThink.org, a journalism blog. Jay Rosen, welcome to our show. Thank you very much, Colin. Let's initially stay focused a little bit on what happened before, during, and after the impeachment. But we should probably begin by saying that you tend to to be fairly critical of the way the mainstream press reports all of this stuff. And I don't know if there's one of your particular ideas you want to apply to the specifics of impeachment coverage. Well, it takes place in the context of a movement led by the president of the United States to discredit the news media in the eyes of their supporters as a way of adding rocket fuel to their campaigns and injecting a kind of rejectionist view of the whole business of journalism and the craft of news and the institution of the mainstream media so as to bite off or, or section off a section of the public and feed it news about Trump that is basically from or for Trump. And I think this has largely been successful. So that's part of the political movement that is powering the Trump candidacy and the Trump presidency. And this has proven to be a very difficult thing for journalists and everybody really to get their minds around because that's a new kind of warfare, a new kind of propaganda in which you're not trying to persuade people of your point of view or trick them into believing something that's false, just to flood the zone with BS. So opposing that, overcoming that, figure out how to operate in an environment like that, these are all new and difficult challenges for journalists operating in 2020. If you sort of think about the way the broadcast media and the cable media covered the impeachments, I mean, during the hearings, you'd have hearings live in real time. And when they take a break, you'd cut away. And if it's CNN, you've got a whole bunch of experts and you've got Jeffrey Tubin and you've got Ross Garber and you've got Gloria Borger. And you probably have Rick Santorum in there, you know, because they, they want to have somebody who can express a kind of conservative response to what everybody else is saying. And I'm wondering if this is in any way a fruitful exercise. Obviously, on Fox, some kind of obverse of that is going on. And if all we're doing is showing these hearings and then doing analysis, are we doing anything or are we simply just telling people what they already believe? In some ways, I agree that the kind of violation of constitutional order we saw almost requires impeachment hearings, even if you know they're not going to succeed I basically agree with that as a citizen. I don't think the Congress had much choice. But at the same time, the fact of knowing that it's not going to happen changed the event in certain ways. The one thing that you know cable television is going to bring to a subject like that is overkill. Repeating the same questions over and over, and yes, certain voices differing in interpretation, but after a while, it becomes both extraordinary in the sense of history making and like banal. To the extent that in press coverage in everything these days, it's, you know, every year is the hottest year on record. What does that mean? Well, I mean, for a lot of us who would be reporting on the science of it, it really is a very frightening narrative about climate change. For a whole bunch of other people, it's just a completely meaningless statistic and, and something that's been ginned up to alarm people and, and further empower environmentalists or whatever that. And in other words, every set of facts is subject to subjective interpretations as opposed to the notion that, well, if we could get five more facts that were relevant to this, we could probably resolve this. I mean, the impeachment is exactly that kind of thing where the five more facts make no difference. By contesting every single thing, even the proven facts, you drive more people from the arena, you make it 
harder to pay attention, figure out what actually happened, just raise the information costs to an average citizen and create chaos in the public narrative. You know, make it really difficult to figure out what's going on by raising the cost to understand, even for your own supporters. So then they just fall back into warfare mind. So, well, I'll let you describe your notion of the truth sandwich. It actually originates with George Lakoff, the Mm. um, Berkeley anthropologist, social scientist. And he tried to understand why journalists repeat things that they know are untrue and sort of spread falsehoods in the guise of fact-checking him, and he was concerned about that. So he recommended something that later on became called the truth sandwich. Mm. I think Brian Stelter might have given it that name, but it's Lakoff's idea. So anyway, the idea is... If a public figure says something like Arabs cheered on the rooftops throughout New York City on 9-11 and there's no evidence for it and nobody can find any such thing and nobody remembers any such thing and it's pretty much made up, then we can say that. With the true sandwich, the idea is first you state what is true, then you introduce the distortion that Donald Trump may have made at his rally, and then you repeat the truth to end the segment from little bits like that, credibility, trust is built back up, right? Right. That's kind of the opposite of what we do most of the time, because <laughs> President Trump is kind of calling the square dance at all times. So that's why Lakoff was identifying one way that an aggressively counterfactual, unfactual, lying, cheating, making stuff up president can get the better of a public service press corps is... When we don't practice true sandwich, we practice eye-popping claim. It sounds so easy when we're having this conversation right now. It sounds like, oh, yeah, that's exactly what I should do. I should focus entirely on what is true in each one of these situations, introducing as a little garnish somewhere in the middle of the sandwich the fact that the president has said something other than what is true, and then, yeah, finish up. But it sounds so easy, but I don't quite understand why— that is it because he established early on that he was the story. I mean, starting in 2015, 2016, you had CNN taking pictures of the empty podium waiting for him to come out. He wasn't even out yet. He was that big a story that we've just never been able to break that habit that he's the most interesting dog in the kennel. No, I think it's that as a phenomena, he and his movement genuinely overwhelm the control systems in journalism. And so the example of fact-checking being overridden by him not caring that he's fact-checked, and not just repeating, but repeating endlessly, making it part of his stump speed, as it were, that kind of behavior is an attempt to override journalism. And it's very successful. And so very often... It's not that the press hasn't checked it or resisted or pushed back the, you know, by doing journalism, but it is overridden by these larger forces, whether it's social media, whether it's the Trump phenomena itself, whether it's enemy of the people rhetoric taking hold at more than one level of society. All these ways that the space for free journalism is being fought over and it's become part of the Trump phenomenon. I'm not saying I know what to do, but this is something that I'm trying to monitor as a citizen and as a critic, because our press is under pressure. It's under threat. Um, We look across the globe, the space for real journalism to operate is actually in decline globally. So we have to attend to how we keep that alive here. Like, how do we keep creating that space for real journalism, independent journalism? That was Jay Rosen, a media critic and professor of journalism at NYU, joining us by Skype. We'll take a break here and come back with the final edition of Factoids with Kyle Wolf and Slate Political Gab Fest's David Plotz and AccuFrankie. It's the final AccuFrankie 2, alas. Hi there, I'm Colin McEnroe. This is Pardon Me, and we'll start this segment with our final episode of Factoids. Here's Kyone Wolf. 
The 1969 movie The Italian Job ends with a gang of thieves trying to retrieve their stolen gold from a bus dangling over a ravine. Moving toward the gold makes the bus tip even more. Finally, their leader, played by Michael Caine, says, Hang on a minute, lads, I've got a great idea. And that's how the movie ends. After nearly two years, former communications director Hope Hicks is returning to the Trump administration, this time reporting directly to Jared Kushner. Hicks previously testified to the House Intelligence Committee that she sometimes told white lies for President Trump. She was romantically involved with White House Staff Secretary Rob Porter, who resigned in 2018 after allegations of domestic violence from two former wives. Even though he's a former staffer, Porter has obeyed Trump's order to defy subpoenas. This has been the longest three years in recorded history. A study by the Washington Post found more than 300 cases of children who were harassed at school by fellow students or staff using Trump's name or policies or rally slogans. Three quarters of the victims were black, Hispanic, or Muslim. Forty-five kids were picked on for supporting Trump. In Utah, two kindergartners told a Latino boy that Trump would send him back to Mexico. Polls conducted in 2012 across 20 countries found over 14% of people believe the world will end in their lifetime. In 1992, political scientist Francis Fukuyama published a book predicting the end of history. Since that time, he's published several other books explaining why that did not happen. The final sentence of Cormac McCarthy's apocalyptic novel, The Road, is in the deep glens where they lived, all things were older than man, and they hummed of mystery. He is, unfortunately, referring to trout. The longest final note of a pop song may be the one held for 19.4 seconds by the lead singer of Sheriff at the end of When I'm With You. But how do I end the final factoids? Hang on a minute, lads. I've got a great idea. I'm Kyone Wolf, and this has been Factoids. As we draw to the end of this show, pardon me, one of the things that's been very delightful and pleasant is to have members of the Bazelon family on. We've had Emily Bazelon on, then we had Lara Bazelon on, and then we had Zeppo Bazelon on, and actually he had written a book called The Drama of the Ungifted Bazelon, and he just turned out to be a very bitter and profane man, and that wasn't a very successful interview. But in the back of my mind, with all these Bazelons coming on, in the back of my mind was this idea that maybe one of the last voices people should hear on this show would be, in fact, David Plotz, who is the host of the Slate Political Gab Fest, on which Emily Bazelon appears. The reason that we're having him on right now is that my sense of David Platz is that he's an institutionalist. He's a person who believes in the power of institutions and that when we believe in the power of institutions, we can, and those who participate in those institutions, can transcend politics, can set our eyes on some other horizon other than just immediate self-interest. So, David Platz, can we talk about the power of institutions or the power they used to have? Yes. And as you say, this is a moment when they're not or when the important ones that could act to make this a less dangerous moment have chosen to abdicate. You know, I continue to believe that when the deep, long history is written of this era, the true shame belongs to Republican legislators, particularly to the Republicans in the Senate, who have chosen to not use the power of their institution, to not protect the power of their institution, to not value the power of their institution, and instead have essentially capitulated to an executive bent on personal gain and corruption and vendettas and a destruction of the institutions that have existed. And so it turns out that if there isn't a countervailing force to protect an institution, it's not that hard to pretty quickly ruin it, as we've seen President Trump do enormous damage to 
I mean, obviously, he's done enormous damage to the credibility of the White House itself and the, the word of the president to that institution. But he's done enormous damage to now the Department of Justice this week. We've seen Department of Commerce to the census. I think there's a growing mistrust of data that the United States creates. And when those institutions work well and when they function well, they allow markets to work. They allow regulations to be fairly enforced. They allow people to believe in justice. And when they become arbitrary or become incompetent or become totally corrupt, there's an enormous amount lost. And we're just beginning to see it and feel it. And I think we're going to feel it for a long time. Of course, you lay the biggest blame at the president, but you lay secondary blame at the folks who could have checked him, and that is primarily Republican legislators. Let's just continue on with the idea that you're laying out right now, because yes, we can look at things like things that are seem, they're not even institutions. They are the underpinning practices of institutions. So subpoena power. Well, it doesn't really seem to work exactly the same way. The judiciary branch has a check, not really working that well right now. The legislative branch has a check, not working that well right now. And I mean, in the past, we've seen other things like filibuster be kind of contorted around. And obviously, impeachment itself <laughs> as a check doesn't seem to work very well. And I don't expect you to have some kind of, you know, encompassing Francis Fukuyama type answer to all of this. In fact, I would hate it if you did. But I mean, there's a point at which it starts to look like it's flatlining, right? There are two possible paths here forward. One of them is restoration. And the other one is the so many of these things don't work. And so many of these things have been vanquished and rendered inoperative by self in, the self-interest of certain people that we don't get them back. You're usually kind of a pessimist. <laughs> At which way are you looking these days? Incredibly pessimistic. I think your state of Connecticut was home to Juan Lins, who is a Yale political scientist who looked at why certain forms of government were unsustainable. And in particular, the American form of government, where you had a popularly elected president and then popularly elected legislature, and they were each had separate sources of legitimacy. In the US, you have it times two because you have two popularly elected legislatures. And what he discovered is that essentially there are really no examples beside the United States of this form of government enduring because each of them has legitimacy and each of them has a claim of popular support. And so they often come into conflict and there's no good way to mediate that conflict. The way to mediate that conflict is one or the other dominates. And in general, the executive dominates and you end up with an executive with a kind of military behind it or military plus a judiciary behind it that becomes an executive dictatorship. And that's where we are. We have a Congress that no longer has the power to check the president because, as you say, they've lost the power to subpoena. They've lost the power to discipline the president through impeachment or discipline the president through public shame also. I mean, this, that's a non-institutional but very important piece, which is that when shame is available, people who are shamed will tend not to act so grotesquely. But if they no longer feel a sense of shame, it doesn't. that's a loss. And I think the U.S. is headed towards an executive dictatorship. That's where we're going. And I don't see anything in what's happening that suggests we can easily get out of it. I would love to see the institutions that we have strengthened. I, I think we want to see things like city governments and state governments develop as counterweights and we want to see civic institutions continue to thrive. So even if you think like the federal government is going to work, let's try to build these civic institutions that people build at the grassroots level, whether they're religious or their professional organizations or their trade associations. Those are the forces that ultimately in the long run will protect society. But in the short run, there's nothing that makes me feel confident that the federal government can work and also, not just an executive dictatorship, I should note, but a minority executive dictatorship, an executive dictatorship where a minority of citizens and a minority of voters will decide who that dictator or that president is. So since that's probably the case and since you know most of what we can do now that will be useful will be for archaeologists 100 years from now kind of sifting through the rubble, kind of, well, what happened? They, you know, this seemed to be a pretty interesting representative democracy and that it didn't work anymore. I think one of the arguments that you that I've heard you making in the past, and I think I might have brushed them off too lightly, is that notion that, yes, representative democracy is at the core of this idea that we had, but there are these other people within the democracy, and they are people who are believers in institutions. And so it used to be when somebody would assert the primacy of the U.S. Senate as the world's greatest deliberative body, and, and in so doing say, you know, there are ways in which we are the Senate, and we 
are not beholden to the whims of the electorate. There's a way in which we persist. That used to bother me. But in a way, that's exactly what failed here, right? There was a certain point at which Mitch McConnell could have said to Trump and to everybody else, no, this is the U.S. Senate. We have traditions. We have standards and practices that have existed for decades and decades, and they take primacy over this particular moment or any kind of popular pressure you could put on us. And that's exactly what didn't happen, right? They didn't insist on the primacy of that stuff. Right. And I would actually say there's a second version of that regarding the bureaucracy and the government institutions like the FBI, like the Department of Justice, like the Department of Commerce, like the EPA. We, I wish there was more of a deep state. If you look at a country like the United Kingdom, where you have parliamentary democracy and governments go in and out, and there is a much stronger tradition of the career bureaucrat, these career people who run agencies, and they don't move quickly to act out the whims of a particular prime minister. And in the U.S., I think there was this idea that the Trump folks have that there's a deep state and that deep state is trying to prevent the president's wishes from being carried out. And I wish there was more of it. It would be great if there were more of it, because in fact, you do want the experts. You want the people who know the most, the people who have the deepest experience, slowing the role of the popularly elected people and sort of saying, yes, we'll get to your policies, but let's do it slowly and deliberately. And what's happened is that they've tried in certain places, they've managed to slow things down and make sure the processes are abided by or, or snarl things in the courts. And so they slow things down that way. But in general, the so-called deep state is not that deep. It's quite shallow and can be pulled up by the roots. And, and when you pull it up by the roots, you lose all this expertise. You lose the scientists and the lawyers and the bureaucrats, those faceless bureaucrats who know what they're doing. Uh, and that's a huge risk. Michael Lewis has written a really good book about it called The Fifth Risk, that when you lose the ability to strategically plan and to kind of run a system well, you make all kinds of things worse and worse run. And that's what we're doing. Let me ask you the opposite question. Why can't restoration happen? In other words, there's an election just in, you know, a few months from now. There's an election that presumably or possibly anyway, an opposing candidate could win, a a candidate who believes in a lot of the things that you just articulated. So why can't all those people just go back to their posts? Why can't it be the end of Sauron and the waters of Middle Earth run clean again? Why, Why don't we think that that can happen? Well, I think whoever wins the presidency, and particularly if a Democrat wins the presidency, there's not going to be a governing majority. So there will not be the legislative action that is required for a real big change in the world will not be available to anybody. If you have a Democratic president, if Elizabeth Warren were elected president, she'd bring in a lot of really smart people and the folks at EPA would get back to protecting the environment rather than despoiling the environment. And you'd probably run some of these agencies better. But I think what one thing we all know, the law of entropy applies in government as well as everywhere else. It's a lot easier to destroy things than it is to build them. And you build trust over generations. You build capacity over generations. And you can lose it very quickly. And I suspect you're going to have very few people are going to want to go work for government or many fewer people are going to go to work for government, whether it's a Democratic president or Republican president, than want to work for it a generation ago. Because the jobs seem more precarious. It seems like you could get screwed over the next time there's a an administration change. And it doesn't seem like your work will survive. So one of the things I think that's been most effective and pernicious in what Republicans have done is to destroy belief in the project of government, which is a very valuable project, like to have a well-run government. And if you make it so people don't believe in that anymore, they won't want to work there. The best people won't go there. And it will be a poorly run government and people will have less and less trust in it. And that's where I think we are. I think we're in a vicious cycle. That was David Plotz, co-host of the Slate Political Gab Fest, joining us by Skype. As we come to a close here, we've got our final AccuFranky dispatch from Connecticut Public Radio's Frankie Graziano. Over the course of our 11 shows, Frankie's gone out to a Target, a Walmart, a Big Y, a library. He's been to New Britain and Manchester and Tolland. This week, Frankie went out to the Stop and Shop in Colchester, Connecticut, in search of those elusive regular people. And he talked to Carol Clark and Sarah and Ivy and Robin 
Kevin, all from Colchester, and Scott Barnes from East Hampton, and Richard from East Haddam, RJ from Salem, and sisters Barrett Mann from West Haven, and Winnie Edmonds from Moodus. And here's how that went. <clears throat> Three, two, one. We're at a stop and shop just off of Route 16 in Colchester. Excuse me, ma'am. I'm a reporter from Connecticut Public Radio. Impeachment's over. We want to get reaction from people, see what they think, see how it went. Really quickly, opinions. Your opinions. I don't know. It was interesting. What were you expecting when it all started? Well, I actually thought he'd get in trouble, so I was surprised. I still think he did things wrong and illegally, so even though they didn't catch him on it. I'm happy that the impeachment trial went the way it did on the first trial, but I think that they were more partisan on the second go-round, and they didn't vote the way that I thought they should have, because there might not have been as much evidence as there has been in past impeachment trials, but there was still impeachable offenses, and they should not have kind of gave him the the go (laughs) It was about what I expected. I thought he should have been convicted, but I wasn't surprised at all by the result. To me, it was just very obvious. I just didn't agree with the whole thing. I mean, I agreed with the impeachment. I don't agree with the way it came out. That's what I mean to say. It's not how I expected it to go. I'm not happy with how it went. I think it went really well. You supported Donald Trump throughout the entire thing. I do. Still do. I'm glad it's over. It was a waste of our time and money. (laughs) The whole process. The whole process. And it was our time and our money that was wasted. How much did you pay attention throughout this whole process? Not too much. Just enough to know what was going on, but not enough to get aggravated. We just want to get a general sense of whether people paid attention. Oh my gosh, yeah. Whether they cared. I'm the worst person to ask because I didn't watch it. The reason I didn't really watch it, and I'm terrible because I'm not very politically savvy at all. I'm a total yogi meditator, put my head in the sand, not political person. But from everything I understood in my limited view of politics, it didn't really matter how long it went or what they did. It wasn't going to happen. And so I just, I've always been a straight Republican. My husband, lifelong naval officer, career military people. So Republicans tend to do more for military, but I'm also a complete bleeding heart liberal on a lot of issues. So, And that's why I get frustrated because some of the things he does are amazing. I, I just read today that he just passed a law making it a felony if you're caught animal abuse in all 50 states. So of course I'm for that. Do I love the idea of the border wall? No, I hate that idea. But I, I don't know. I can't pick and choose. It's all or nothing. I always expected him to be acquitted because the Republicans don't have a backbone. And I'm ashamed to say that I'm actually a Republican. Really? Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, my God. I'll still take her home with me. <laughs> no, well, she's my sister. I got to take her home. But I thought the same thing she did. I thought it was going to be, you know, acquitted right from the beginning. It was a whole big rigmarole for nothing. The, the Republicans just don't have any backbone to stand up to a misogynistic idiot. idiot liar you know they didn't allow any more witnesses to come in and the subpoenas that we did put out weren't honored that's wrong you get subpoenaed you better show up at court thought it was pretty short i thought they should have called witnesses and was expecting a little bit more it's witnesses and documents they absolutely should have been introduced well actually they were introduced they brought all the documents and everything over from the house to the senate so they had 17 witnesses that were actually presented to the Senate. The House only chose to present 13 of them, but they were there. I think that Trump getting to get away with as much as he has gotten to get away with is going to change the country. I think that his supporters are more gung-ho than ever, and I think that they're going to be on board with basically anything that anyone like him decides to do in the future. I think the Democrats were very malicious and their impeachment of the president, what they brought against him was not impeachable. And they're going down a very dangerous path in the future. The Republican Party has seen that there aren't any consequences for these type of actions and that as long as they hold the majority in the Senate, they can get away with pretty much anything. I'm glad it's over. I hope we go back to normal. Do you think it impacts who you're going to vote for in the next election? Well, I was never going to vote for Trump, so I'm still not going to. I've never liked him to begin with, even when he was 
his uh, reality show and all this other stuff. I didn't like him then, so... No, she's voting Democratic. No matter what, she's voting Democratic. (laughs) Anybody to get him out. Absolutely. I would do a monkey (laughs) voting to get him out. I think a monkey has more brains. (laughs) What does this do for Donald Trump? Oh, I think it just, just makes him stronger. I think he's going to win. I don't see any of the Democrats that can beat him. They all have a lot of baggage when you look at things in their past and things that they've said. And I don't think that they, their ideas line up with the mainstream of America. It makes me insane because I don't think the Democrats have a real strong candidate. And four more years of him is just a horrible thought. You sound pretty agitated. I, I am agitated. Oh, my gosh. I don't know, to be honest with you. I feel, this sounds so earthy, crunchy granola, but I really feel like if we would take long, hard look at ourselves and just concentrate it on putting forth love into the world, that has a trickle-down effect, and it affects everybody, and Democrat or Republican, I think we need to love more and be kinder to each other and spend time knowing what our own triggers are so that we can work on ourselves. Yeah, I wish that we would all just be a little bit more self-aware. You know, that wouldn't be a bad place to end, actually. That's a pretty pretty good sentiment. I have to end partly first by saying that this has been a really great adventure in which the producers, Jonathan McPants and Betsy Kaplan and I, have learned a lot about how to do a certain kind of show. And I'm incredibly grateful to them for their efforts and to Katie Tularski, who's the boss, who kind of greenlighted this, and Tim Rasmussen, who greenlighted the greenlighting of it, but especially Jonathan and Betsy. I mean, this was long hours. And so when this is all done... I'm wearing sweatpants right now. That's how close to all done we are. When this is all done, we're going to not make any radio shows for a whole week. That's the only rule where everybody's going to go off and be themselves and because there's a lot has gone into this. But there's one or two last things I'd like you to think about. In, in 1973, Arthur Schlesinger described the symptoms of an imperial presidency this way. The all-purpose invocation of national security, the insistence on executive secrecy, the withholding of information from Congress, the refusal to spend funds appropriated by Congress, the attempted intimidation of the press, the use of the White House as a base for espionage and sabotage directed against the political opposition. Now, does that sound a little familiar? Schlesinger didn't have to stretch his imagination. He had just watched Richard Nixon do these things. And when you consider those words from 47 years ago, I'm going to say them one more time. The all-purpose invocation of national security, the insistence on executive secrecy, the withholding of information from Congress, the refusal to spend funds appropriated by Congress, the attempted intimidation of the press, the use of the White House as a base for espionage and sabotage directed against the political opposition 47 years ago. And it's clear that Donald Trump hasn't invented anything new under the sun. So what's different? What changed is the supporting cast. The supporting cast. Okay, you know the movie A Few Good Men? Everybody remembers the great climax when Colonel Jessup reveals himself under the righteous questioning of Lieutenant Daniel Caffey. And then the horns and woodwinds well up and we have justice. And when I watch it now, though, I watch the judge. The character's name is Judge Julius Randolph. And all the way through that final scene, he makes rulings. And with each new ruling written across his face is the growing awareness that something is wrong. Something does not conform with his most basic expectations. Something is going to unfold in his courtroom that will require him to side against a very powerful man. And then there's the prosecutor, Captain Jack Ross, played by Kevin Bacon, of course, who hesitates just briefly before acknowledging that his theory of the case has exploded and his obligations, his duties are now different. The supporting cast, 
Without them, the story doesn't reach its finish line. Now, Watergate's supporting cast included Lowell Weicker, Henry Kissinger, Alexander Haig, Hugh Scott, John Rhodes, Barry Goldwater. Each of them reached a point, some sooner than others, when blind loyalty to a party and its president became less important than the continuance of democracy. And we didn't have those people this time. We had Mitt Romney and... Uh, and Mitt Romney. See, when I first pitched the idea of this show, I knew how the process would end. We all did. But I believed impeachment was worth our special focus because of what we would learn. And that is what we learned, that we don't have much of a bench these days. And ever since escaping removal from office after having been impeached for, I'm going to use Schlesinger's words one more time, the withholding of information from Congress, the refusal to spend funds appropriated by Congress, the attempted intimidation of the press, the use of the White House as a base for espionage and sabotage directed against the political opposition. What has Donald Trump done since then? He has, to a startling degree, in just a handful of winter days, done more of those very same kinds of things, and he will keep doing them. And one by one, some of the people who should have done more a lot sooner are going to come over to the side that most of you are on already. And I would ask you to do one thing. Welcome them. No matter how much they disappointed you in the past, you need them now. It's not crazy to think the president will try some very extreme measures including a shutdown of the election day process if he thinks the tide is turned against him. Be ready to link arms, maybe even physically. And if the person standing next to you is John Kelly, link arms. And if it's William Barr, that's right. If by that point, William Barr has come to understand that Donald Trump is not the embodiment, but the destroyer of everything he believes about the American presidency and has come down to the street where the crowd is forming outside a polling place, link arms with William Barr. Link arms. A democracy is as good as its people. It needs a great supporting cast. Thank you for listening to these 11 episodes. 